I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About Vikings. About time travel. About the medieval history that we do have on record because white people were there. About swords. About the academy. About questionable choices. About time travel. Always about time travel. About the ethics of the space-time continuum. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week... I'm very pleased to announce we are talking about Until Forever by number one best-selling author, Joanna Lindsay. You should do the plot summary. No, I picked this one. I mean, I'm the one who found it and gave it to you. All right. So, Until Forever is about a 27-year-old tenured professor of medieval history who has a hobby collecting antique swords. Her brother acquires for her a sword known as a blood drinker. Blood drinker's curse. Blood drinker's curse, which is a mysterious sword, but it's in crazy good condition. However, her brother, he's not really her brother, her stepbrother. Well, not even that because they're parents, whatever. Her brother-like figure has to acquire it for her because the man refuses to sell the sword to a woman. It has been his family for generations and the one rule was don't sell it to a woman. Typical. Once she gets the sword, she touches it, she hears a crack of lightning and a very sexy Viking appears. Turns out this is a cursed sword. It's a curse for Thorn Blood Drinker, Thor's lesser known brother. Can you imagine how much that sucks? Who was tied to the sword by a witch named Gunhilda as revenge for him denying her significantly older daughter in marriage. And so the way the curse works is that whenever a woman possesses the sword, she is able to control Thorn. He has to do her bidding, whatever it may be. And because of this, Thorn has popped up in weird moments throughout English history, because that's where his sword was whenever he got the axe. <laughs> as it were. He's always going back and forth between Valhalla and the summoning. He's been raped by women. He has been forced to do battle for a lot of political means by these women who have summoned him. It's mostly the sex thing that I that sticks out in my mind. But he gets summoned by this professor. She doesn't believe it. She eventually convinces herself that it's true. And she's like, okay, I'm going to use him to learn as much as I can about medieval history so that I can finish my book. Mm-hmm. She recently discovered that her ex-fiance stole a lot of her research from his book. published it. And published before her. So she's like, I've got to fix this. Mm -hmm. She knows that she can't complain to her department. No, Dean Johnson is the worst. Dean Johnson is the worst and he's not going to help her out. So she's like, all right, here's my Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. Here's my saving grace. But it turns out they come to like each other a lot. And Thorne decides to treat her by introducing her to one of her favorite figures from history, William the Bastard, and they end up fucking up all sorts of space-time continuums. The second half of the book is them trying to rectify things and then ruining things and then trying again and then it's still not good enough. And then eventually she asks Thorne how she can break the curse and he says, you just have to willingly give me back my sword. I can't tell anyone that because I can only explain how to break the curse if someone actually genuinely is interested. And you're the first one. She's like, great here's your sword back and he's like no I want to marry you and goes back to Valhalla and then reappear oh my god <laughs> I love this ending so it's like oh my god okay so it's a really good happily ever after because you probably think like he battled Valhalla to no he decides to be born into her current timeline so by the mid 90s he is a published author sharing their love story moving in next door to her not creepy at all and they're able to be together mm-hmm. it's not creepy <laughs> i have the beholder <laughs> 
creepy. She wanted to be with him and he she wanted did. to be with her and he, he went did. to her house to kind of determine if she wanted to be with him. Yep. Gotta was see the lay of the land. by her reaction that she did and he's like, oh, great. great. Thank goodness you didn't end up with Blueberry. Blue Baker, you dick. It's Barry and then he's like, what are all these berries? And then he's like, I prefer blue. That's the joke about Barry's name. Oh, I don't Barry remember that. Ex, oh, Barry, her ex, yeah. Uh, who is an abusive husband in one of the timelines. Yeah. One of the 1984 timelines she ends up in. Definitely like the Handmaiden's Tale version of that story. Okay. What do you want to talk about first? Wow. So much. So very different from a pirate's love. Uh, yes. In all the best ways. All the best ways. Thank Christ. Do you know, I want to point out something. When I was reading this book, I was kind of down to the last two days when I had to get this done. And I was like, all right, I'm going to count the chapters I had left. And then I was like, all right, I'm actually going to then divide up the number of chapters. I was like, you know what? It'll be way more efficient if I divide it up by the number of pages I have left. It was the exact same. The chapters are broken up in such a consistent and predictable way that when Craftsmanship. I- Yeah. When I broke it up by- by page number rather than chapter, it was the exact same as when I broke it up by chapter. Fascinating. Isn't that buck wild? I mean, Johanna Lindsay, like hats off, man. The thing that I have to give this book and Johanna Lindsay as a writer in general is- Your as- whole heart and full endorsement. <laughs> is that this book as bananas as it gets I felt out of control as the reader but I never felt as though the text was out of control no and that's kind of amazing because this shit is bonkers and I have to say the ending I was like this is very satisfying it, it doesn't satisfying. feel like a Hail Mary at all it feels no. like and it also felt I was shocked to say I was touched I felt like it was really romantic that he was like alright I am going to be born I'm going to start my life over in 1968 so that by the time 1996 rolls around we can be together I liked that she didn't end up choosing to go to his time yes or that they chose to stay in that time that she was really 1066 or whatever yeah I was really concerned that that was going to happen because that's certainly how it felt like it was building towards and so I was happily surprised yeah that she got to stay with penicillin and you know birth control control yeah and votes although occasionally whenever she would leap back and forward in time she would discover that those things hadn't shown up yet yeah that they disappeared which was a funny and interesting way of dealing with like a space-time continuum like ethical dilemma like what changes also like i have to say in both timelines and both alternate timelines they're like three William of them. the bastard lost the war mm-hmm. but for different reasons mm-hmm. and those two different reasons created drastically different worlds also at one point Johanna Lindsay has our main character Character Rosaline say that William the Conqueror, William the Bastard, is the greatest king of England. And I was like, a lot of people are gonna disagree <laughs> because he was literally William the fucking Conqueror, a Norman, a Frenchman king who came over and slaughtered the Saxon people and then took over an island. Hot. I was like, he had a big impact. Sure did. He had a big impact because I am taking what would have happened if he didn't successfully do that as fact. This book should be taught in every history class in America. You know, it's funny. This book was more convincing to me of like the alternate reality than that 
1963 novel that came out. James Franco is in the miniseries version of it. Oh, the Stephen King novel? Yeah, the ethic of time travel is really interesting because she's like, why is Thorne so cavalier about traveling back in time if there are all these ways that he can fuck it up? And she's like, oh yeah, he's like utterly unstuck in time. He's immortal. These huge drastic changes mean nothing to him because it's not him experiencing his actual world, his actual life shifting, which I thought was a really interesting point to think about when we think about something like the ethic of time travel. Also the fact that he was a mortal being but was made immortal by these time gaps. Yeah, and it's just that time in Valhalla moves differently, so he's not actually immortal. Right. He's just aging very slowly. Right, and his aging process ages faster when he enters a summons. Yeah, yeah, he starts aging normally. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was all interesting, but I want to ask you, because I think despite whatever the author may say the ultimate in time traveling romance is outlander yes starring the utterly charming in interviews katrina belfi and sam hewnan Mm -hmm. is that right yeah they're great anyways how does this hold up against outlander yeah how does the ethic of time travel because i do know that outlander kind of dabbles in like doesn't she deliberately go out to change history no she doesn't she falls accidentally but she finds out that somebody has come before her who is legitimately trying to change the course of Scottish history by getting the Bonnie Prince Charlie on the throne. So yeah, Outlander deals explicitly with the ethics of time changing. Uh-huh. Which I, I don't think this novel is coy. No, not at all. asking about a, an ethic of time travel. It's not a question I expected Joanna Lindsay, to tackle. author of A Pirate's Love, to take on. I was impressed with it, but I don't know if I'm just like inexperienced. We read Awaken My Love, which mm-hmm. has interesting ideas about time travel, mm-hmm. but it's very narrowly tailored to a personal experience mm-hmm. and doesn't talk about like the ramifications of a changing future. Like it's very small in its scope and its stakes for time travel. Whereas I feel like Until Forever and Outlander are kind of dealing on the same scale. I think. And so I would like to know in your educated, mm-hmm. knowledgeable opinion, how does this hold up as far as like an exploration of the ethic of time travel in a romance novel? Oh, okay. Well, that's two different things, right? Because Diana Gableden, for all of her weird reasons, refuses to be classified as a romance, even can though we, it can totally we say is. For the purposes of our podcast, it's a romance novel. Sure. I feel like people are going to add us on that one, namely Diana Gableden, who's the only one who's adding anybody about it. Do you think she listens? She definitely listens to us. Are you fucking kidding? Diana Gableden listens to us. Fact. How does it hold up? I think they're really, really different in the the way in which they deal with stakes. In this one, it's immediately obvious that like, this one is more like a butterfly effect where Mm -hmm. it's like the very smallest actions in the past have far reaching consequences in the future where it's like the industrial revolution is like set back by over 150 years. Uh And in another one, the Puritans have taken over and like- America never gained its independence. Their Puritan ethic actually was influential (laughs) on England now. Right, and in the future. And Diana Gableton's time travel, while, really really explicit like there's never that much that you can change and I think kind of in the way that like I'm thinking in particular of like the Odyssey right now where it's like there's this question of like fadedness and so like in the way in which like you struggle to change time like that struggle never really manifests even as you change little things like they don't manifest in the future and so like some things that are fated to happen just seem to continue to happen in Outlander whereas like in this case this is like some Star Trek shit where it's like you got to go back because you fucked it up hard. I think some 
Star Trek shit is exactly right because yeah. they have to like really research like what went wrong. Yep. And also, I love the part where she discovers that she just meddled too much. Yep. Like she overdid it. She overthought it. Her yep. plan overshot the mark. Yep. And she found out that she didn't even have to put herself in this danger. She was just kind of swept up in the adventure of it all. Mm-hmm. While I think this book, I felt like I fully understood the rules and boundaries of the supernatural elements mm-hmm. of this text, which I was also super impressed with because this is a Porsche. This thing is small. Everything serves a purpose. It's tight. And it is heading to its destination quickly. And the fact that it was able to, I never felt like I was making a concession like, oh. <laughs> I was always like, okay, like the rules have been set out for me. Mm-hmm. And what was nice, especially about the rules about like his control uh-huh. and like her control of him slash his resumption of his own autonomy was repeated enough times so that I could understand its intricacies, which was really only twice. And that was like, yeah, wow. Yeah. And it was just like a really efficient, clean modus operandi. Yeah. But you still get all of the silly fun of time travel, like fish out of water stuff. Like whenever Thorne it was- comes to her house and is just sitting in the dark of her library. because He's learned about light switches, but he mm-hmm. hasn't figured out lamp switches. And he's so deeply resentful that she wouldn't tell him how a lamp worked. Right. Or that he throws the blender on the floor because it makes too much noise. Yeah. You know, the hairdryer. All Starts the- to pull out his sword as they're approaching a truck in a car. Or like. Her assumption, she's like, he's going to love this car. It is going to blow his mind. And then she immediately over explains it. He has zero interest. And And then he's fucking terrified. And then he's scared. And she's like, oh my God, I'm such an asshole. Of course, like this one. And she doesn't acknowledge it. This book is doing some interesting stuff with gender that it's unacknowledged. For sure. One of the things about that um, fish out of water thing that you're talking about is like, it only ever happens to him mm -hmm. because of her quote-unquote training as a fucking tenured professor at 27. Except for the part where she just like traipses out in the camp of soldiers as like yeah. an unescorted woman. Fucking Guy of Anju warned her though. And like as a historian, she should have fucking known that. And I also love that she's like, ooh, my rudimentary Norman French. And I was like, when did you practice? When did you fucking read any of this shit? Yeah, here's some other unbelievable parts. The time travel to me was more believable than the fact that she was a tenured 27-year-old woman professor hands down I was totally on board I'm like also that she got tenure after one year one year (laughs) and I'm like when did you even have time to complete your PhD you literally didn't and the kicker for me of that is that like Johanna Lindsay says she'd always received above average grades and I'm like to be a tenured professor at 27 her grades would have had to been off the charts and also it's not about grades at that level my Christ and then the other thing I loved was she was thinking about I'll just go forward in time to the 18th century and get published and she's like they don't worry about sources and I was like that's really interesting she's like yeah lawyers didn't get involved in the 18th century and I was like that's not who reviews the facts of a book do you think there's a lawyer who has to double check your work do you think that's what lawyers do it's called peer review Joanna Lindsay you lunatic also that she's leaving <laughs> stuff for the substitute professor right, to teach her fucking plans for her substitute professor. I laughed out loud. Oh my god. You know, like whenever you're in college and the substitute, substitute professor, professor comes in and he like obviously wants to be your friend and just puts on a movie. Yeah, in my medieval English class. The fuck, Johanna Lindsay? Have you been to college? <laughs> and also like 
Thorne, the second time she summons him, is in her classroom where she also has a desk. Basically, Joanna Lindsay is writing like what being a high school teacher is like, yes. as if it's the same thing as being yeah. a college professor, and then completely misinterpreting the peer review process. Also, like the process of being on faculty, like there's no way a dean would have accepted, and like she would have been showing her work. Like the idea that her stupid fiance Barry was able to steal all of her notes and everything that she'd be working on. There's no way that her fucking faculty committee. Or like her faculty in general wouldn't have known what she was working on. And they certainly wouldn't have given Barry tenure after that move. No, as soon as you brought it up to Barry and showed your work, he would not have been up for tenure. No, my God. Barry would have like been buried in some other fucking school. Even in the early 90s. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Stuff about the substitute professor. That was ridiculous. Extreme. There's a lot of shade thrown at Lydia. Yeah, Lydia is her brother David's wife and she's never there. Literally never there owns many houses and like her job is to own palatial houses in France and England. Yeah, and it's very much they talk down to her about it. And yeah, like, and it's it sounds super like a really snotty. interesting occupation if you've got money. Yeah. Why are you hating on Lydia so much? Here's the thing. Yeah, she hates on Lydia, but then there's this note that's critical of Barry, her ex-fiance. Getting that complicated was beyond Barry Horton's imagination, after all. Not to mention that he was too tight fisted to cover the expenses for the kind of sophisticated equipment it would take to pull off such a hoax. So she thinks he's set up a projector to beam this Viking into her office to make fun of her. I Obsessed don't with under- yourself so much. I know. His idea, Barry's idea, of an extravagant gift during their courtship was to bring her whatever flowers happened to be in bloom on his route to campus. And I was like, that is a very lovely thought. But this is such a Reaganized text. Heaven forbid he should ever enter a florist shop. The less it costs, the better was his motto. Like there's all sorts of weird classes stuff going on Super here. classes stuff in here. She owns a cottage in England as a tenured professor at the tender age of 27. Yeah. But also like all of the weird classist hate against Lydia, who's clearly an economic bracket several degrees above Rosaline. She's, she's landed gentry, isn't she? Yeah. So like, why are you hating on Lydia? She's just like fucking born into the game. She was just, yeah. I mean, you know, I resent them, but, but I don't think Rosaline should have it both ways. Yeah. Also the idea that she was constantly tortured with her name being Rose. Can I put my thorn in your rose? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Where did you go to school? I don't even think it got that graphic. I mean, at some point somebody said something like that. That's why she like didn't want Thorn to make the connection to her name. She like thought he was a joke because his name was Thorn. Yeah, because that's how she was teased in high school. I'm Thor's lesser known brother, Thorn. Thorn. Hilarious. Oh my God, dude. So funny. But like unintentionally funny, like, or intentionally, like how, how seriously am I taking Taking Johanna Lindsay. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know, man. I just liked it. <laughs> Okay, so Westerly, along with a number, as, as we're talking about academia, this is the college. Westerly, along with a number of other prestigious schools, had courted her during her last year of college because of her outstanding grades. Yes. She had chosen Westerly because it was in a small town, which she preferred, because it was only a three-hour drive from where Gail, her best friend, had moved to. And because she'd been promised tenure within her first year there if she fulfilled all of the expectations, comma, which she did, period. Bullshit. It's not how you get tenure. Also, you're out of college. She didn't go and get her PhD is basically what this is saying. It's fucking bullshit. Another sign poster of hardship that we have for our heroine is the it's fact that she wears fake glasses. 
because she doesn't want to be hassled. She wears her hair back in a very tight bun and she wears fake glasses. And dowdy she clothes. Wants people to take her seriously. Mm-hmm. I know you had a bad feeling for it, but I was like, I buy that. That's fucking relatable. Glasses are a way of if wielded in a certain way as something other than a fashion accessory can make you diminutive. I want to know how you felt about the fake glasses because you indicated earlier when we weren't recording a certain amount of repellentness. I am deeply against fake glasses. As someone who has been legally blind since the eighth grade and has been legally required to wear glasses or contacts lest I become a danger to myself or others, find the idea that you would use or appropriate glasses as a way of making yourself like less attractive but it's a hallmark of this thing where it's like this librarian that you didn't notice as soon as she takes off her glasses is gorgeous he even says Thorne does he's like jewelry is supposed to enhance your beauty why are you wearing jewelry that doesn't and it's like fuck you my glasses have a utility but I think some people do wear glasses in a way that is a fashion accessory sure I didn't encounter that until I was in high school and boy you know glasses are typically like a tool for someone who has a sort of disability I guess you said you're legally blind. I am. So that would qualify as a disability. Yes. So like a utility, like a tool that helps you with a disability, like a cane for some people. And the fact that this particular tool, glasses, mm-hmm. comes with a certain amount of cultural cachet, mm-hmm. right? It's a way it can be utilized for different things. You can use it as a fashion accessory. You can also use them as a way of protecting yourself from men who make passes, right? These different ideas of using them in the wrong way are disturbing to you because it perhaps is the same as like someone using a handicapped parking sticker when they're not handicapped. Well, I don't like that either. Right. Obviously, they're both bad. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. Well, I'm not sure if the glasses thing is bad, but using a handicapped parking sticker when you're not handicapped is bad. And perhaps you understanding that glasses thing is bad. Are you seeing like a similarity between those two? I think that like glasses are a kind of shorthand, especially like in our moment, I think, and like the moment that this book is writing and glasses do have the kind of cachet that you're talking about. But like that isn't always so. And that isn't always true in all circumstances. Like, uh, you know, four eyes is a moniker that lots of kids grew up with. It's not always cool to have glasses. It's not always a fashion accessory. And I think like the move to take up glasses and also have a severe bun and also wear dowdy clothes and also and also like it's just like one too many things and also like the minute that he takes her hair down and then her fake glasses off I'm like I've seen this movie like it just didn't add anything to me and I was like irritated that her glasses were fake because like if her glasses were real that's different I want you to talk more about why the glasses though were the bridge too far the glasses do have bridges on your nose because she is like a again, an astoundingly beautiful woman. So like the way in which that you would hide or obscure that part of yourself because you perceive it to be like less authoritative or less academic. She's also a very tall woman. It says that she's 5'9 or 5'10. So like she has a commanding presence, but she's doing specific things in this way to like command something else, except she doesn't ever truly command it. We never see her really command it. We don't see her with her colleagues. We don't even see her with her students. 
students. So like all of this is a discussion about her own perspective of self. And to me, without like seeing the audience that she was performing for or like how she interacted with them, like the glasses were a bridge too far for me uh, because like we already had all the other things. Like, did you really need them? Then it's a discussion of like the shell that she's creating and it's like a barrier to the world. And like there's a moment where there's like a smudge on her non-glasses. And I'm like, when you clean your glasses, you do see the world differently. I want to think about that a little bit more about glasses specifically, sure. like in general as like a thing, because glasses can be jewelry, like Thorne understands them and correctly understands them. But a jewelry in her case, that's meant to be diminutive. She doesn't think of them as jewelry, though. Like she thinks <clears throat> of that as a misunderstanding. That's a fish out of water moment for her. Right. But like there are people who use glasses as jewelry. Right. But she's like not a fashion accessory. And I, I'm just thinking about glasses generally. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of is it offensive to wear glasses like spectacles, not like sunglasses? Is it is it offensive to wear a utilitarian object for some folks as a decorative statement. as a decorative? I think it's like between like a tool and a decoration. Sure. I can think of tools that if someone was wearing them as a decoration, I would be like, that's offensive. Yeah. The glasses, I feel like, are different, and I don't know why. I don't think it's offensive. I think right, offensive. Right, but why not? Why not? Why is it different is the question that I'm mulling over. I don't know, and I think, like, that's probably a question of our moment, and it's, like, because, like, the way in which I utilize glasses, right, to see, like, blind without them. But I could also use contacts, and I am also, as I'm told by my ophthalmologist, an excellent candidate candidate for LASIK. So then Can there's a question here around what did glasses used to connotate and what do glasses now connotate? And so like, I think there's a real shift, right? Where this like nerd chic came in in the 90s. You know, I was never made fun of for wearing glasses, but like certainly my dad was. I want you to kind of talk a little bit more, just like give me some more perspective and information and background on why you think it is of this moment. Because nerd chic actually has happened many times over the course of history well before the 90s. There was Nerd Chic in the 70s moment that was really well known. And actually, if you go to the American Museum of Surgical History right here in Chicago, you can learn a whole lot of history of glasses as Mm -hmm. a fashion accessory that goes back to their first conception as spectacles. Like for medical purposes, people started wearing them for fashion purposes as well. I think maybe there's something there about our current moment that I kind of want to hear you develop. Because you mentioned it's like a question of our moment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessary because of like an idea of nerd chic. And so I kind of want to know more about where you're coming from on that. I mean, from my personal experience, like my price of glasses has also gone down astronomically every year that I've been alive. Like my first pair of glasses was extremely expensive because you could only buy them really at the eye doctor or lens crafters. Mm-hmm. So now that we have A places, flattening right, like, economically. For sure. So then we've got like Warbly Parker and Zenny Optical and like you have all of these options that are now A, much more fashionable and be readily accessible to you as a consumer. I think it changes our relationship to the tool, but it also changes our relationship to it in terms of like its ability to be an accessory. And like, it's not an accessory if it's a tool, but a tool can be an accessory. And I think like that's the gray area. And I think like when I talk about our moment specifically, it's like you just have so many more options in terms of like, A, how you treat your eyesight, B, how you choose to wear your eyesight. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Like nerd chic really comes around and goes around. But I'm thinking very specifically of like my adolescence when I first encountered the idea that someone would wear glasses that didn't have a prescription lens that weren't sunglasses. And I was genuinely shocked by the idea. 
Yeah. What Missouri town? Well, this was in Shawano, Wisconsin. Shawano, Wisconsin. That's really interesting. I'm going to think about this a lot. Yeah. Because I do think glasses are... I'm in general interested in like hindrances that also carry a certain amount of cultural cachet. Like I'm very interested with the question of straight people saying my partner instead of my boyfriend or girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Whereas like my partner entered our lexicon because people were denied the right to get married Mm -hmm. but wanted to express something more intense than boyfriend, girlfriend. But there's also like there's become this adaptation Mm -hmm. to a lack has carries a certain amount of cultural cachet. And I was talking to a friend and I was like you know I feel weird even though I've been with my boyfriend for a long time seeing my partner because I've never had a weird conversation with my parents about my sexuality and I've always had the privilege of saying this is my boyfriend confidently and normally the only time I didn't was when I was like a kid and embarrassed and shouldn't have been saying I had a boyfriend anyways shouldn't have had a boyfriend (laughs) and like you know so this idea of partner but then I also understand like relationships is like different than just these like you know Mm -hmm. boyfriend girlfriend uh, fiance mm-hmm. but there's got to be something like some genderless form of boyfriend or girlfriend that is used by those who are genderless Wh- who am I to come in and be like me too <laughs> <laughs> me as well but then I'm like but then using partner that makes it normal and protects people from feeling self you know it's just like a very interesting question and I think glasses are actually maybe like a really safe and tangible place for me to explore those questions that lead to these bigger optics speaking of optics. gender dynamics <laughs> I'm trying to find this place that our heroine ruminates on women's lib oh fucking Jesus I definitely highlighted that part okay can you find i had it i had a post-it but then i ran out of post-its i ran out of post-its listeners Mm -hmm. by page 73 and then had to steal post-its from other portions of the book i marked this for you back came the blush because he actually sounded offended she's just met thorn for the first time she even glanced he's wearing a loincloth when he shows up just his loincloth she even glanced down at herself to see if one of the buttons of her blouse had come undone if she had lost her belt without realizing it or if one of her stockings was slipping but now she looked as neat and nondescript as ever in her wrinkle-free polyester. (laughs) (laughs) I love that shit. But also I think her shirt coming unbuttoned might have been my glasses moment as someone whose shirt is constantly coming unbuttoned and not in like a sexy way, not like the top button, the button that I have most done on coming undone. It's like the one right at the bottom of my breast and then the one right above my belly. So it's like a real gut show (laughs) whenever My blouse and buttons itself. So I just buy men's shirts in enormous sizes now when I want to button down. So I recently (laughs) bought two men's sweaters and A, they're the most comfortable thing. They're also much more well-made than this stuff that I've gotten for myself at Target. Where is this? this whole thing about like are men men are women women yeah exactly and I remember that being like such a question in the 90s god such fucking culture war bullshit oh okay so here's part of it the mere thought of it this is her summoning Thorne again seeing to his needs his sexual needs caused a hot flash fluttering deep in her belly it almost made her wish she wasn't burdened with the strict morals that her father had imparted to her (laughs) he was a reverend (laughs) it even had her questioning her state of virginity when she never had before after all how insane many other 27 year old women could claim they'd never made love with a man she'd have a hell of a time finding one in this day and age i love the tacit implication there that she has made love to a woman i do too <laughs> that's like my favorite part of that i'm like mm. asterisk she went to college 
whatever, Johanna Lindsay. The 60s and 70s had been responsible for the sexual revolution. In the 80s, women had gained... I love this timeline. Do you want me to do it slower? Yes. The 60s and 70s had been responsible for the sexual revolution. In the 80s, women had gained power and made strides toward attaining equality. And the process of changing people's attitudes about women's role in society had continued. Women had gained a lot. There was no question of that. But they'd lost true gentlemen in the process. I hate it! They'd lost true gentlemen. But then, I do think the book problematizes this perspective because it introduces Thorne, a would-be true gentleman. Gentlemen. And homeboy is like, listen, I don't have time to figure out how these buttons, am I saying that correctly? These boutons work. So I'm just going to grab either shoulder of your shirt <laughs> and rip it off. You can do it to me too, gentlemen. Oh like Equality. <laughs> equality. But there is a point where our heroine later on is thinking once again about her role. And she's like constantly trying to be conscientious while she's in the past of the fact that like stuff's going to be weird and she kind of has to adhere to these ideas. Nothing really bad happens to her. Nothing really triggering happens in this. Yeah, this is no pirate's booty. This is no pirate's booty, which I think we're going to revisit our opinions on pirate's booty whenever we talk about a certain other text that we have planned. coming up. Speaking of historical relativism, she talks about how in her own lifetime, she was given the right to live the way she does now. And I was like, that's really fucking true. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think the current movement of feminism often forgets. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when Bridget Bardot came out and was like, why can't men be men and women be women Mm -hmm. in reaction to the Me Too movement? And I think there is something that we have to keep in mind and that wasn't acknowledged and maybe because it's too painful is that my mother couldn't get her own bank account you know when I was 12 I got to walk in and set up my own bank account my own savings account and my mom couldn't have done that my grandmother couldn't have done that people we know in our immediate lives people who are alive today grew up in a much different social strata and had to adapt emotionally physically they had to adjust their expectations also psychologically yeah exactly psychologically like they can't live as what we deem appropriately in the world we're in now because they had to survive Mm -hmm. in a way that was deemed appropriate you know a mere 30 40 50 years ago yeah uh, especially Bridget Bardot who got married when she was like 17 to her boss I know so like The Cut just put an essay up about this because it was uh, just over the holidays this young mother was witnessing her stepfather like tickle her daughter and her daughter was like really uncomfortable but clearly uncomfortable also like trying to say like yeah. I don't want that yeah and so then she comes in and says my daughter wants her space like leave her alone and like this moment of like you know yeah protecting the autonomy of her young daughter and her mother comes in and is like you're overreacting uh-huh. and I read that and like you know the essay goes on to like consider this and be like you know the failure of her own mother to like protect her daughter's autonomy when her daughter had a sexual assault and not believe her and like this thing that you're talking about just made me think of that article because like the mother is also trapped in this mode and like has had to psychologically adjust herself to survive yeah but to not go crazy right in the incessant gaslighting (laughs) that was the world
world. And to simply get along. Yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of survival. Yeah. And although I don't think Joanna Lindsay was intentionally making that point, she does a really good job of making that point. This woman who longs for a time when men were men. Oh my God. <laughs> women is still like, oh shit. I have to like retrograde so much of who I am, even though I am fascinated with this moment in history. Yeah. She loves walking around in her own time, like not being menaced by groups of men who feel like they get to own her body. Yeah. And like when she goes back into the past, and that's a thing that happens to her, and she's warned by the little squire that Thorne leaves to protect her. And he's like, you don't want to go out and do this. Like this idea idea that like she did feel safe in her skin or safe enough at least is a real privilege that certainly female bodied people don't walk around with everywhere even today yeah and certainly didn't then and we have a privilege our mothers don't have yep and our grandmothers and aunts and stepmoms and all the previous generation doesn't have of a certain amount of perspective a certain amount of empowerment that I here's a hot take comes from Sally Jesse Raphael certainly comes from Oprah comes from people you know putting things like rape and saying this is rape and saying if you're a little kid and you get touched in these places tell an adult yep. that kind of were the seeds of autonomy yep. I, mean, I was watching an interview with Carl Lagerfeld and he talked about being sexually assaulted when he was a little boy and his mom told him it was because he was being provocative <laughs> and that if he didn't want to get raped he shouldn't be provocative and Carl Lagerfeld's perspective was she was right oh my god I was strutting around asking for it as like a five-year-old and I'm like you know what's the adjustment you would make if you were in that situation like how would your perspective shift I think there's more judgment than empathy happening across the board sure I mean even in my own like from my move from 18 to 31 when I was a freshman in college we all took the safe dating training or whatever Mm -hmm. that you're mandated to take and one of the things that my college stressed to me as a freshman was that alcohol was newly considered a date rape drug yeah and like the dudes in this class that I was mandated to take were so offended by that. And I remember thinking, giving that argument credence at the time being like oh well if we're all really heavily drinking and like maybe no like it's the absence of consent for everyone isn't it yeah. and like oh my god no like there's like, <laughs> and like exactly and like the change from that moment in myself and like having an RA who's like a scant you know 18 months older than me at the time being like now I know this might be confusing but alcohol is now listed on the date rape drugs you know that you can use just like roofies and it's like don't say it's confusing <laughs> yeah just explain why I know. <laughs> I was like, man and that was like 2006 yeah man I remember reading an article it was called like my daughter will not say hi to you mm, mm-hmm. and it was like you know when you're a little kid your mom's like give him a hug mm-hmm. give him a kiss say please say thank you give him a smile wave mm-hmm. you know and then you didn't and then your mom was embarrassed super embarrassed like it was a reflection of her parenting like, uh, or like I had a cousin who constantly did that buzzing thing in my ear uh. and I hated it and I didn't want to be around him and he just insisted on like a much older cousin and he just like insisted on holding me and I was 
much older and I was talking to my other cousin, the only other girl cousin. She was like, she's also older than me and she would be, you know, seven when I was three or something and she would be like, I was always trying to hold you when he was around because I knew what it was like. And that's crazy, you know, like to think about that, like now I would never, I would never say like, I'm so disturbed when I see someone, you know, saying like, hug your uncle, you know, <laughs> but that's how we were raised and oh, that was normal. 100%. And that was, you know, it wasn't okay to tell a child that they had autonomy, bodily autonomy. Yeah. And that they could make choices about what they were doing. Again, I think this is like the culture of being pleasing. And if you were, if you resisted, you were a bad baby. Right. And you being a bad baby was a reflection on me, your parent, being mm-hmm. a bad parent. Mm-hmm. Like that intergenerational of like not meeting the standard that society is setting is fucked up. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, it's sort of like your mother being forced to yes. hug your uncle through you yep. as a vehicle. Yep. God, it's messed up, you yep. know? Totally. This book is so good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having more fun talking about it with you than I did reading the first half. I will say until we got to the Star Trek stuff, I was like, what the fuck am I reading? Well, in the first half, though, we do get speaking of rules and stuff. We get the commodification, the explanation of the parameters around Thorne as supernatural slave. Mm -hmm. So these rules are interesting. Yeah. And it was interesting that people could be in possession of the rules before the summoning because one of the key aspects of Rosaline's relationship to Thorne is that she doesn't know about the rules of his release from his slavery. And he cannot share the rules of his release unless someone genuinely, the person who owns him, oh, I'm not genuinely even, asks about I'm not it. even talking about his like entire release. I'm just talking about the release when she says, you can go now, which yeah. then gives him the autonomy to be like, nah, I think I'm going to stay. Yeah. When she says, you should leave, he has to go back to Valhalla. At some point, she kind of passes tells him to go. Isn't that right? No. As soon as she gives him leave to leave, the decision becomes his. But until... Oh, whether he's going to stay or Yeah. Leave. But until she gives him leave to leave, he <laughs> cannot leave and he has to do literally everything that she says. So in that car scene, when she says, you should close your eyes because you're so scared, and he's he has forced to. to close his eyes. Yeah, he has to close his eyes. I thought the only thing he had autonomy over was whether or not he left once she gave no. him leave. Once she gives him leave, he gets autonomy over all the things. I thought that Which is he- why they can have sex. Without her explicitly saying, I want that. Well, I think he can act on his own, but like he is still not freed from responding to her direct demands after he gives her leave. If she's like, you can go now. And he's like, all right, I want to stay. Then at any point, if she's like, close your eyes. If she's like, turn off the light. If she's like. I'm not sure that that works. I think it only works in relation to then the sword and the going back in time because she does have to consent to do that. He's the only one who can wield the sword's supernatural powers. Right. But she has has to consent to go he can't take her right but I think it's everything because she gives him leave mm-hmm. before they get it. in the car she gives him leave as they're in the car let me find it because I highlighted the rules but the whole point of the curse is that he is utterly beholden to a woman if a man wields the sword it's not the same thing he can't even be summoned by it. yeah whereas like if a woman has the sword all she has to do is touch it and then he's there yeah so I thought it would be silly if all she had to do was say he could leave and then he could decide to stay and then she had no further control over him modern plumbing he'd accepted without a hitch and then he's forced to leave whenever his summoner is killed right in the timeline or die I love that 
that he says that they no longer exist. That's how he refers to his people, his owners. I thought that was really sweet. The William the Conqueror timeline is the only timeline he enjoyed getting summoned to because Blythe didn't use him for anything besides fighting, Mm -hmm. which he was mostly used for. He was used for murder plots. Okay, so this is the rules about the sword. The number of summonings doesn't matter because the time need not be the same. It's depend on what I envision. If not has changed in a place from the way I remember. That's the time traveling rules. Yeah. I want the telling him what to do rules. Yeah, okay. So she was different from the others. There was no denying that. She did not want the use of his sword arm to kill her enemies. She did not insist that... That part doesn't explain how it works. Yeah. That it would not let him lie to her or harm her. She had much more power over him than he realized if she would ever... Than she realized. Yeah, if she would not release him. Once he was released, however, the power was his to command. I thought it was released whenever she like willingly gave the sword over to him because that's what he always wants. And that she doesn't do until the end. I understood it as like, you can go now. I always understood it as his like total release whenever he was given back his sword freely. The curse would allow him no other option since he had been directly commanded to do so. He enjoyed killing. He despised murder. But the thing is, is like she releases him the first time she sees him. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he leaves. And then she's like, exited. but she has power over him in the car. So wouldn't she not have power over him since the first time she saw him in the classroom? No, because it's with each summoning. So then once he's summoned again, like she has all the power until she says, go away. And then in the car, she says, close your eyes. And then she's like, you should go because you're so scared. Close your eyes. She suggested she hadn't really expected him to do it, but he did. It didn't seem to relieve his tension, only seemed to make it worse. It's not going to hit us. It's just going to pass us on the other side of the road and be gone in a few minutes. Rosaline, release me. Oh God, why hadn't she thought of that to spare him this terror? All right, you can go i'll call you again so she released him Mm -hmm. and yet he still couldn't open his eyes you're right so the only way he can be freed is if she gives him back his sword and breaks the curse does that sword give me any other powers that i should know about the smile he'd been wearing went from pleasant to positively beaming it did did not does what's that supposed to mean the power was yours to command me i could not lie to you hurt you or refuse to do your bidding thus did you have complete control over me she stared at him incredulously no wonder he had closed his eyes in the car when she told him to and literally had had to get permission from her to open them again the thought of having the spiking utterly in her control was mind-boggling but he was speaking in the past tense her eyes narrowed at him suspiciously are you telling me that I had that power, but now I don't? It seemed impossible, but now his smile was even more smug and triumphant. Indeed, when you released me, you lost the power over me. Oh, then why didn't he just open his eyes when she said, I release you? I don't know. I don't think the rules here are as tight as they are with the time travel. This is what I'm saying. Like, as soon as we got to the Star Trek stuff, I was like, oh, buckle in. But I do think it's still saying something interesting about autonomy. At one point, he says he doesn't mind being bound to her because he would be bound to her anyways because he wanted her. Yeah. And I think there's like an interesting conversation about beholdenness happening in the first part. Yeah. And there's even in the second part later, like the ways in which the code of honor is enacted as a code of beholdenness. Like the person who rescues her from her attempted gang rape is this guy named Sir Renard. And then Thorne comes back to the tent pissed as shit. And he's like, why is Renard saying that I owe him? I don't want to be in his debt. (laughs) Like that's a weird thing. 
thing where it's like, what favor did Bernard do you? He did the favor to Rosaline, but in this world and this timeline, yeah. like the code of honor and like what it means to be beholden. Well, it's just that she's as a woman is not a subject right. to be beholden to. But I think early in the text, there's this interesting gendered flipping that happens because when I saw a Viking on the cover and read the word Viking, I was like, okay, he's going to like domineer her and everything. And that is immediately undone by the rules of the sword. I think it's an interesting tool and an interesting move. It allows the relationship to begin in a different way. There might have been like an expectation of a Viking novel, which is weird because it seems like Joanna Lindsay would jump at the opportunity to write a traditional Viking text. But I think like, and it's like he's Viking I think in name only. I think something more, I don't think he's Viking in name only. He talks about how much he loves fighting sure. and eating and fucking. And that's like his three main prongs. And it's through, of course, because it's a romance novel, it's through the course of his relationship with our heroine that he starts to uncover other interests that include protecting... And that's pretty much it. I was going to say, what are his other interests? He becomes a novelist when he's reborn. That's true. He's trying to woo her. And you also find out that it's not his first novel, which I thought was pretty interesting. (laughs) He saved it for a second. I I think there's something more than just, once again, I I don't want to claim it's intentional, Mm -hmm. but I think there's something more than creating circumstances wherein a modern gal could fall in love with a Viking. And I think it's the idea of like the commodification, like the fact that she is constantly hiding her physicality, making it more severe, covering it with glasses. Whereas, you know, she's decommodifying her body all the time. Whereas Thorne's body is pure commodity for committing violence and sexual acts Mm -hmm. that I think is really interesting. And it makes the first half compelling without meaning to be. And she slowly through the course of this first half, this picnic that she has with Thorne, his body becomes less of a commodity Mm -hmm. than his knowledge about medieval history. And her body becomes more of a commodity and they Benjamin Button commodify in the middle. That's a really good point it's because like, he's always trying to take off her clothes and undo her hair and take off, off her, her glasses, glasses. Uh-huh. and he's eating the sandwich with the saran wrap still on it and she's like Why what fucking use do I have for this person <laughs> and she's like oh yeah he can tell me about medieval history <laughs> yeah it's also so funny to me that he like loves William the Conqueror so much like she does she's so horny for him and she gets so excited whenever Thorne's baby. like that model which like who takes photos of models dressed as conquerors and then puts them in classrooms and universities. People who really, really like Renaissance fairs. This is not the Renaissance, by the way. <laughs> we Super know duper that. Not. We know that. Don't at us. <laughs> Their absolutism prevents them from falling in love. And then once they become diluted. Or, sure. Or like versions, calibrated to each other. Versions of themselves. They are able to begin a relationship. Which I thought was a really interesting idea. I like that their relationship is purely sex for him for a while like that felt earnest and true and he's like I just mm-hmm. fucking want to fuck you mm-hmm. I mean he was kind of charmed by her because sure. she was it was like so sad he was like charmed by her because she hadn't raped him or asked him to murder anyone yet yeah and he really liked that she was constantly reprimanding and chiding him yeah and yeah he's like she's spunky oh and that's awesome like the difference between like a reprimand a chide 
a nag and a command. Oh, for sure. Because he talks about how the women who summoned him would initially be shy about Mm -hmm. wielding their power. And then by the end, all tended to be assholes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting question of power because we tend to think about women as chiding, teasing, nagging, and men to be commanding. But whenever a female assumes that energy over our hero, of course, he finds it to be evil, bad, whatever. I think that's also... I mean, no one likes chiding, no one likes nagging, Mm -hmm. but he is able to see the value in it because he is seen... Yeah, he's seen the other side. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything like confounding about the idea that a powerful woman is seen as an evil force. Like, I think. No, that's absolutely not confounding. I'm just saying, I think he's able to appreciate something like a chide because he actually has direct experience with something more violent. For sure. Whereas like women, we would, wouldn't it be great if men were more chiding and nagging? (laughs) One of the things that I did love about the chide and the nag, which is also actually very present in Outlander, that Jamie will chide and nag Claire about her safety but like chiding and nagging as a kind of language of care well hold on because he chides and nags about her safety but then also murders people for no her i'm safety. talking about her chiding and nagging of him as a way of like creating space for herself and like she's constantly like you can't talk to me like that these are the rules this is what i'm doing and yeah. she's like spunky in a way that like forces space And like forces him to like take a breath or like Mm -hmm. see it from her side. Like there's a way in which her chide and nag and her whatever. Like she's constantly annoyed in the battle scenes, which I found really hard to figure out. Like the first battle scene where like he throws her up in a tree and then she gets down and she's just like, oh, I'm so annoyed. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? She doesn't understand the stakes. She doesn't realize that she can die in that timeline, which is part of it. Have you ever read a romance, a contemporary romance between two contemporaries where the chiding and the nagging is understood as no 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 just was understood as a pleasurable thing by the hero because I think that happens in time traveling romances the idea of like a fish out of water a modern gal's way of speaking is interesting and provocative to the hero whereas if she's a modern gal and he's a modern guy I can think of exactly chiding and nagging doesn't come up in my limited experience I can think of exactly one it comes out and this is we've never read desert island scenario romance but this one is called I think it's called like the island of the geek she and he are stranded on a desert island from a plane crash and they've worked together in this small tech company and she nags and chides him about all the ways that he could like do better and it starts off as this like you know you're actually really cute if you put any effort into it like you could get a girl no problem and like it sort of starts in that vein and like by the end of their island rescue is that nagging or negging it starts out as negging and then becomes nagging and chiding and like the way that it happens over the course of the novel in my memory is that he likes it because he reads it as her caring about him and then it turns out that like he can't dress well because he's colorblind and that she feels like shit for making fun of him for something. was she th- saying he dressed poorly because his colors didn't match sometimes yeah especially like his sweaters and I stuff. don't buy that <laughs> why is he wearing sweaters on a desert island well he wasn't wearing sweaters on the island but at work sometimes they knew each other before the desert island. yeah they were on a work trip together and then the president of their company is trying to like swindle the stockholders and crash the plane and then get all the insurance money. Um, We'll read it. Yeah. So I just had a thought about nagging and why it would be charming in a historic context. Or I was thinking about like high powered executives like, wow, I've never been talked to that way before. And I think it's because when a woman is nagging up 
And she could be nagging up because the man is her boss or the man has more wealth than her or the man is from a point in history when women had absolutely no power and there is no world in his mind in which her nagging can have an effect. Whenever a woman is nagging up, it's charming. But if a woman is nagging at a peer, it has the potential to emasculate and then it is immediately understood as as a cruelty and disgusting and disturbing. And so I was about to say, I thought it was charming that he liked her nagging, but now I'm going to revoke that and say absolutely unacceptable unacceptable I think you're Every, right he can't like her nagging until everyone likes nagging all the time I also think like nag itself is like such a fucking ugly term yeah. right it's like you're an old horse on the who's about to die yeah like all of the ways in which women's language and women's communication is denigrated when it's like really a woman vocal fry yeah fucking geez Ugh. right and I think you're so right to term it in terms of like when it's pleasurable to a man it's not called nagging it's called chiding or reprimanding and I think like that word choice is also really important because Mm -hmm. when we talk about nagging at peer or nagging at level of you so cogently noted it's henpecking and emasculating in a way that we immediately then are not on the woman's side yeah because god forbid we emasculate that's the thing that's like exhausting yes dude it is the most treacherous waters because like if you emasculate a man suddenly like not only do they have the potential to become violent but everyone is going to justify their violence yep that sucks it's like you have somehow it's not personal it then like immediately becomes societal yeah in a way that's just like so grotesquely unfair yeah you're all of it yeah you've done it (laughs) and you're like the you're probably the one bad encounter he's had like the one really critical thing that's happened to him like he hasn't been called tits mcgee by a stranger most of the time when he goes out he hasn't been policed in the same way you've been constantly he's never had a dress code imposed on him i mean i know it's like obvious i'm not really saying controversial but my god is it frustrating and sometimes i just want to express how fucking frustrating it is yeah damn it Yeah, I'm with you. And I think like, yeah, I've, boy, I feel like we really figured something out here. Should we do sexiest and weirdest? Or should we like talk more about the timeline continuancy? I feel like we haven't even delved into the ethics of how that timeline changed. Well, I think there is something. Okay, so the timeline ethic, I think, gets worked out really beautifully. Yep. And really cogently in the book itself when she realizes like the impact he has on my timeline, the reason he was so willing to take me back. Like the only rule he has for it is don't run into yourself and he follows it blindly. No one knows what happens. It doesn't come up in the book. Like the only thing Odin has told him is don't run into yourself. And then she's like, oh shit, everything is ruined. Like how could we have like done what we did? And like he was a part of the ruining and he didn't really think anything of it. And she realizes that it's because he's an immortal being and like her timeline is really a meaningless holdover to him. It's not a home. And so shifting it and breaking it isn't really a problem for him. I think that's so beautifully put. It's not a home for him. No time is a home for him. Yeah, except for Valhalla. Right, which is timeless. Which also, he's not even a god. He's not even supposed to be in Valhalla. It's just by like the kindness of his father, Odin, and the tacit acceptance by his 
much more famous brother Thor yep. that he is allowed to remain in Valhalla because he didn't meet the criteria he didn't die with his sword in his hand or whatever yeah this curse is a real it's a real curse it's a real curse <laughs> like Gunhild did a good job oh my god it's so sad so at one point he tries to test the waters of convincing our heroine to stay in 1066 because it's his favorite time mm-hmm. Odin had always said it would be possible for him to continue life in that timeline if that was something he wanted to do the reason he likes it best is because the woman who exerted power over him was just like just get this guy on the throne and then like she was just the nicest boss yeah and he really respected her got to hang out with her younger brother who was his squire guy of Anjou which for a really long time I was like guy 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 I was also racking my brain I was like what (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I'm like oh it's the guy of Gisborne from Robin Hood which is a full hundred years after this yeah I thought that was also really sweet and the way that he talked about his former uh, owners not existing I know I said this earlier but I thought that was like a really interesting way to talk about like the winking out that is mortality and how it's sort of like alien but also not like saddening to him mm-hmm. and the timeline stuff is crazy so like they go back William the Conqueror doesn't make it they like go forward back into her own time and I love that the first time it's not that different right yeah. like she still has an office she still has her house and then like it's only in the way that like you're moving through the time a little bit that it feels yeah. a little fucked up and then when they come back the second time she doesn't have a house, house at all yeah. <laughs> she just lands in an open field and it turns out like England doesn't exist yeah I love the ramp up and I thought that was really cleverly done and it did it felt a lot like an episode of Star Trek and then the third time everything seemed normal Mm -hmm. except her brother was really mean to them about having sex and she's like (laughs) this isn't the David I love her no yeah yeah she didn't want to go back and fix it if it meant Thorne had to hook up with a winch Mm-hmm. Yeah, the jealousy. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, this. I didn't actually hook up with her. The other guy did. Yeah. So she was like, okay, fine. That's cool. Also, like, she makes out with the past Thor in, like, the present timeline, and he gets jealous because he immediately gets the memory downloaded into his yeah, core yeah. as it's happening. And I was like, this is cool. I didn't think about that. That's really interesting. And he's like, of course I was obsessed with you. And she's <laughs> like, it's the same person. And he's like, it's not the same person. I got to know you, bitch. Yeah, that's his point. He's like, okay. <laughs> doesn't even know you he just wants to have sex with you i like you yeah <laughs> so we're sweet. different people and it's because it's like they're on different timelines yeah. and the ethic of time travel and like who you are yeah i really liked that that was one of I my favorite moments stuff about time travel in this book yeah i can't imagine that it gets much better in the romance genre than this as far as time travel goes I and know. i will never read outlander so i'll never know oh my god dude i'm never gonna read it it's so good what is it like fucking enormous size it's 800 pages and there are eight of them whatever Soon I'm so nine. down to read 800 pages of Kathleen Wood <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> you know, I feel like the TV show is like really good. It is very good. It's a really good adaptation too. I, I've so. reached a point in my life where I'm like, that's good enough. There's already a good piece of art that yep. tells me the story that I'm interested in. It's fair. I don't need to collect them all. My mom is probably, if she hears that, will probably be like, absolutely not. <laughs> Read the book. I mean, I also enjoy the books. I own all of them. I went through a very profound Outlander phase before the show came out. I guess I'm just like over that kind of like snobbery of like, oh, you haven't read the book. Also, that snobbery just feels so weird to me now where it's like, I think it had a kind of cachet before 
Harry Potter sort of like blew the scene. But now I'm like, I don't know. Books and movies come out so quickly. Like all of the books that I've read in the last year that haven't been for this show have like immediately have option deals. And like, I'm like, I could have waited two years and just seen the movie. Or like something, I think Game of Thrones was really a shift in that. Yeah. Where like George R. R. Martin is like, I might die before I finish the book series, but the television series will definitely continue on and tell you the story that I want out there. And that's like, that's a huge deal for an author to say something like that and I think also the fact that like people still felt smart talking about the TV show only whereas like if you were talking about Harry Potter after the first movie came out and you weren't comparing it to the book it was like what are we doing here (laughs) 2001 was a very different time it was it was but I think there's something about yeah we're also like television becoming as well funded as it is Mm -hmm. I think does has better opportunity to adapt things Haunting of Hill House for those of you don't know is an adaptation of a book but the TV show is utterly different than the book. Some of the names are the same and like some of the vibes are the same. The Haunting of Hill House is like really famously like open to interpretation. And I really like that there is this adaptation that is so clearly a reader expressing an interpretation of what the book means Mm -hmm. and kind of focusing it. I just think there's like way more interesting things happening with adaptation now that we don't have to get all panties in a twist about reading the book as well. Oh, totally agree. And in some cases, I think the adaptation is better and gets to like the essence of the thing faster yeah yeah for example the fifth harry potter movie Mm. that book is a real slog it was the new director who then carried the rest of the film franchise to make it one of the most watchable and arguably the tightest of the films i think from one of the hardest of the books was a really good move and and it got to the essence of the thing much faster than book five did yeah that's my standing example anyway sexiest bit oh my god the sex scenes are are really like 80s 90s sex scenes they are literally fade to black and then you get the afterglow I think one of the sexiest parts was before she summons him the third time and she's trying to resist it and her relationship with that sword and the wanting and the longing and then when she finally does summon him and he's like, I'm going to leave this time only because I want to. And yeah. she's like, that can't be right. You know, like for like the slight like sexy, scary moment. I thought that was very dreamy. Oh my God, the shower scene. The shower scene's really good. The shower scene is great because Thorne, he likes the idea of a shower, but he doesn't understand how it works. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I'll get the shower shower started for you and he's like you won't need to start a shower in a different room because we're gonna shower and we're gonna sleep together and they get in the shower with their clothes on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean they are covered in gore because they've just come from a battle scene and she's covered in blood yeah and, and mud sh- and <laughs> horse Stuff. Yeah. And so the fact that they're... uh, They get in the shower fully clothed and he starts undressing her in the shower. Mm -hmm. I thought was a great use of the fish out of water moment and also Mm -hmm. a very sexy moment. Sexiest part for you. Um, Sorry, I talked about two. No, it's okay. I think my sexiest bit is also the shower but since that like then moves into a full sex scene and she like has that hilarious moment where she's like I'm a virgin BT dub and he's like I already know because you're not hanging out with a lot of dudes like that's gross but like the way that like the sex is described is really nice because like she's wet and she's like has this thought where she's like I should tell you about towels and, and she's like let's not get the comforter <laughs> yeah let's not get the comforter damp and he's like don't worry we're gonna dry it and it's like the implication is like they like love making it's gonna be so hot it's gonna dry the comforter which a hilarious but it's also never gonna happen never gonna happen never gonna leave that bedding dryer no my god (laughs) does you do you know how sex works but he is licking the droplets off of her and then 
the licking turns to kissing yeah. and then the kissing turns to sex. And, I and thought, she's like, like, I had no idea Vikings knew about foreplay. Oh God, I know. And then she climaxes <laughs> when he puts one finger inside of her and I'm like, mah, mah. I do like that he's like conscientiously puts one finger inside of her to get rid of her maiden head. Yeah, that's really Air nice. Just like, <laughs> and then she's like, great. <laughs> With that aside. Super. But that's, it, how, that's how orgasms sound. In case any of you were wondering, Kathleen, what it was. Super. Is, <laughs> super. But later on, there's like. Excellent work. It's so true. There's this one moment in the afterglow where she's like, God, you're so good at this. And he blushes. And he's like, oh. we shouldn't talk about that. Like, that's wanton talk. And she's like, why are you embarrassed? Like, And he really is. He gets all bashful. That was so sweet. He doesn't know how to take a compliment. I know. Weirdest part. I mean, I would say it's a sexy book. When I sat down, I would be like, no, I wasn't very sexy. It's no, never sweeter. But there are some really sexy parts that pay off in the best way. Yeah. Where it's like about getting to know and like having a little bit of fun. God, can you believe this woman wrote A Pirate's Love? No, I can't. It feels like... Like Hemispheres. Did she have a ghostwriter? No. Oh my god. I think she just grew Weirdest a lot. part. Weirdest part. I mean, just that. <laughs> that this is a Joanna Lindsay. I'm so glad we came back to her. Me too. I think the weirdest part for me was watching something that's so distinctly American play out in a really objective way in this book, which was the fact that she was like, "Can you believe this tight ass picked wildflowers for me instead of going to a florist shop and then being like, oh boy, my sister." Sister-in-law's buying a new mansion. That duality, that like pure middle-class snobbery top to bottom. Yeah. And also like the genuine disconnection with how people actually are and live. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that she's 27 and she owns two homes and like everyone she knows owns a house and like like how life has just worked out for her and her father's a reverend and yet she was somehow able to afford all of this. It's just so absurd. The neoliberalism of the book was the weirdest part for me. For sure. This is definitely a book in the culture wars that made Hillary Clinton have to bake cookies at the White House. Yes, this is a, this is, I got so excited shaking it because that's exactly right. This is, it's the culture wars in this text and watching it happen made me as torn up as watching the Needle Hill trial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Not that torn up. No, but like it, it is really, really weird to watch something play out in a book teach the children Isabeau teach the children about the culture wars oh god so the culture wars of the 80s and 90s the 90s especially as this book states come out of the conservative backlash to the relative freedom and progression of the 60s and 70s Which wasn't really freedom and progression for very many people at well, all good point but the political shakeups that happened right the political shakeups so then especially in the 80s you have this moral majority uh. question and like this idea like this question about like what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman and like this traditional march back into the home and like working women have gone too far. And also a very intentional ignoring of the question of what it is to be white. Oh, totally. Like that's not even. They were like diversity. A child of every race is represented in the big BK kids club. (laughs) We're post-racial everybody. Have you seen the planeteers? We did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So like if the 80s was sort of like the foreground, the 90s, it became an all out war. Because people started being like, wait a second. Right. And so like lines were drawn. Hillary Clinton says this thing in 1992. I'm not the type of woman who bakes cookies at home. And people 
lost their goddamn minds. And she immediately, the very next Christmas, created the White House Christmas Cookie Bake Off. And every year they've put forward the same chocolate chip cookie recipe, whatever. But like the idea that you'd have such an accomplished, incredible woman have to make the Mia Culpa to bake fucking cookies because she said the thing where she's like, I'm not the type of woman. Again, as we've talked about on this podcast, where it's like you put women up against each other. Women are always going to lose because they're Mm -hmm. weaponizing themselves against each other. And so then the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the NEH and the National Endowment for the Humanities were cut because that was also the year that they funded the artist who did The Mother and Christ Baby that has a specific name, but he'd done it in feces. Uh-huh. And boy, the but moral majority was, came for the NEA. There was also the point at which Hillary Clinton was told specifically just to, in discussion of a dictator, to talk about her husband's stance and how they're trying to build this relationship and they put her in a floral dress and then she got up there instead and talked about human trafficking and the problems of that and there was huge backlash towards that. Yep. The hatred of Hillary Clinton was real and like the Beavis way... and Butthead was on TV. <laughs> Nickelodeon was just starting Renancy. on Rocco's Modern Life. You guys don't even know what it was like in the 90s. We thought we could save the rainforest. We sure did. There were all of these like what I would consider distraction causes that didn't pan out to anything as we now know because we are literally frying yeah. on the face of the earth in so many different ways now. The rainforest didn't get solved but like this idea of like, do you know what really needs our help? The ozone layer, <laughs> which was true. The ozone layer did need help, but there was no way they were actually going to put significant resources. I mean, it's just the Berlant theory of like, what's distraction. funny? Sure. What's funny about the ozone layer and the other one that I would say is like saving the whales uh-huh. is that both of those things did get solved. And it's like, I'm curious about the political will of both of those moves, which were global and had to be global. Like they had to ban chlorocarbons to fix the ozone layer and we essentially did the whole its size is reduced by 92% over the course of the last 25 years. Yeah. But we can't fucking recycle or like do this carbon sequestration. Like where... We can't stop cutting down trees. I think it's because uh, capitalism benefits from the destruction of the Amazon. For sure. In a big way. But like capitalism was benefiting off of the destruction of all of the whale species. So like the Save the Whales one is one that I'm like constantly thinking about. Like how did this... Whales have a face. A rainforest doesn't really have a face. And they had a hard time trying to give... Frogs a face. Frogs a face. I mean there's just so much life and like what you're gonna put an anaconda on there and then everyone's gonna be like never mind burn it down that's a really good point (laughs) whales have a face whales do have a face and like the culture wars had a face and whales have a heart massive heart you can walk through them yeah blue whale hearts but yeah the culture wars had a face and the face that the culture wars was one about fear and fragility and like the other face of it was one about progress air quotes and it got ugly and then 9-11 happened and uh here we are listeners and we elected obama do you guys remember that (laughs) do you remember how good you felt i do all right what was your weirdest part oh yeah no like the reagan stuff was definitely weird for me my weirdest i guess it was bush who was in office in 96 no it was clinton it was clinton sorry yeah but it feels distinctly reagan and bush-esque my weirdest part was that she was a tenured professor at 27 like <laughs> it made me so um, mad the substitute, te- the substitute it made me teacher mad, it made me mad until i read the substitute teacher and then it made me laugh 95 yeah. Yeah. The culture wars is definitely the defining cultural yep. keystone and explains a lot of this book. It really does. It really does. 
Romance or nomance. So I would like to call this a so-so-mance because at the halfway point, I was like, mm, this is going to be a no-mance for me. And boy, when it got into that time travel stuff, I was so in it. And I do really enjoy the end. Top to bottom, NTA. tip to tail, romance for old Morgan. <laughs> this was a gift to <laughs> me so from glad. Isabeau. She found it in the store. Why did you buy this for me? I found it in a pick-a-book take a book free library and I saw that cover oh. and I was like there's only one person in the world who will appreciate this in all of its glory it's one of the secret sexy covers you might have seen it on our Instagram story that we posted we'll try and post it again whenever the episode comes out it's a real beaut he's wearing no pants you can see the curve of his hip absolutely no pants totally bottomless she's wrapped in a white fur coat a modern white fur coat you can tell from the sleeve and then you see the sword when I saw that fur coat I was like Morgan <laughs> I'm Furco Rhonda. I love that you got it for me based solely on the cover. I, I do did. love I these sexy covers. Okay, anyways, go ahead. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.